by Martha Herman, Senior Fellow, Hudson Institute. Um, and I want to welcome you who are here to another of Hudson Institute's conferences on energy and national security. Um, and to welcome you to what I think will be a very interesting uh, and quite stimulating discussion on the issue of energy and the United States relationship with China. Now, Hudson Institute, as you may know, was founded in 1961 by Herman Kahn. Herman Kahn, who became very famous, I would even say notorious, perhaps, for his views on issues of nuclear deterrence. Uh, the two books that he published on thermonuclear war, which was the title of one at Princeton University Press book. The other one, Thinking About the Unthinkable, uh, really made the whole issue of nuclear deterrence a matter of not just policy debate, but public debate. And as I say, really became kind of the foundation of when people think about Herman Kahn, they think about, oh yeah, the guy who talked about nukes and talked about uh, second strike and, uh, and retaliation and counterforce and all the other jargon of Cold War nuclear deterrence. But I think it's also important to realize that Herman Kahn was also very interested in energy issues. Um, and he also was someone who understood the degree to which energy um, uh, was not only a matter of uh, economic importance for industrialized economies, but also a matter of strategic importance. That, uh, that, that safe and abundant sources of energy would become the future and become the key to uh, the future for industrialized economies around the globe, not just the United States. And when thinking about these issues, I must let you know that Herman Kahn brought with him, as he always did to every issue he discussed, his crystal ball. And it, it's rather interesting now, 20 years later, uh, to go back to the book he did in 1974 called The Next 200 Years, published in 1974, in which he talked about the energy potential and the energy future for the United States. Now, you have to remember this is literally a year after the Arab oil embargo, when the issue of energy in the United States seemed very much in doubt, very much in, uh, in, uh, in, in crisis. And in the book, as he talks about and summarizes the discussion, 1974, I just want to remind you, summarizes the various natural resources and the possibilities for them in terms of size of reserves, in terms of uh, energy potential, he concluded uh, in the next 200 years that, quote, Hudson's estimate suggests that potential U.S. resources of oil, gas, and coal are sufficient to supply the energy needs of this country for more than 150 years. Furthermore, once an efficient process for the extraction of oil from shale is developed, the whole available supply of fossil energy could be more than quadrupled. And in fact, he goes on in a footnote to say the commercial extraction of oil from shale is still quite uncertain, except for a few of the best locations. However, the development of a relatively inexpensive in situ extraction cannot be ruled out. And of course, what he was looking forward to and almost forecasting there would be the development of hydraulic fracking as a means to extract that shale. And so in the end, he was, he, what Carmen Kahn concluded was, we, may therefore, we might therefore characterize 
future energy systems as relatively inflexible within a decade, 1974, about 1984, flexible over 20 years, and potentially revolutionary within a half century. Except for temporary fluctuations caused by bad luck or poor management, the world need not worry about energy shortages or costs in the future. Energy abundance is perhaps the world's best insurance that the entire human population can be well cared for, at least physically, during many centuries to come. Well, I think we can say that Khan's predictions as far as U.S. abundance of energy have come true. The questions we're going to be addressing today, all day, is about the potential for China in the today as well as in the years to come. Now, what I want you to notice, and one of the handouts that we've got here today, is just to point out to you the degree to which there is an energy revolution already underway, an energy demand revolution, a demand revolution which is moving demand steadily and inexorably eastward as the demand for fossil fuels on the part of Asian countries, particularly but not, in, not solely uh, limited to China, begins to grow and becomes, becomes the major pull, the major draw for those resources uh, around the world from its major suppliers. This is a revolution in which China is going to become an indispensable part and in which that energy demand revolution is one that's going to pose enormous challenges for China in the future. It already does. It already has put China in a situation in which its demands for economic growth are going to be constantly challenged by its demands for its energy needs. Just think about it. By 2035, China will be the world's largest energy importer. China's energy production is expected in that same period of time to grow by 47%, while consumption grows by 60%. There's a mismatch. There's a mismatch there in terms of what can be supplied and what can be offered here. By 2030, China will overtake the United States as the world's largest oil consumer, and Russia as the world's largest, second largest natural gas consumer. And its growth on oil import dependence is going to grow from 60% in 2013 to an estimated 75% by 2035. And in many ways, it's rather interesting to think about China's situation now as it looks forward to the next decade as being very similar to the situation the United States faced after the Arab oil embargo with that sense of a country that had once been self-sufficient in terms of oil production, as China was, as we were in the 50s and 60s, found itself having to import more and more of the oil that it needed to fuel its economy, to fuel its transportation system. And as we know, in China's case, its oil consumption, 98% of it goes into the transportation sector. And so... It, it is interesting to think about China in those terms as it's the parallels with the United States in the 1970s when it faced that kind of a dire economic uh, as well as strategic dependence on oil, uh, on oil imports. The solutions, the policies even seem to sometimes reflect that as in the case, of, uh, as in the case now with China's establishment of a strategic petroleum reserve 
shades of President Gerald Ford when we think about uh, that policy and that approach to the issue of one's oil vulnerability and oil import vulnerability. All of these things, all of these challenges add, add up then to an enormous, enormous undertaking for China in order to deal with maintaining on the one hand economic growth and on the other, and this will be also one of the issues we will be addressing today, and also to come up with solutions that are environmentally sound at the same time that they measure up to international standards about questions of greenhouse gas emissions, of questions about uh, the role of, uh, of, of pollution and particulates with regard to uh, the future of, of China's energy outlook. All of these questions and more are the questions we're going to be addressing today, starting this morning. And what I want you to do is to think about these not just in terms of the challenges that China faces and the ways in which the United States, as a country which has now overcome those problems and has now finds itself dealing with, it, uh, with energy abundance, the ways in which the United States can assist and help in that transition mode from China from energy dependence to energy independence. What I also want you to think about is how China's energy picture fits into the larger global picture and into the picture of China and its policies and relations with other countries and with the, and with the global community. And when thinking about these issues, when, I just, when we put the conference together, there were two names that immediately leapt into my mind who I said I must get as speakers to talk about this subject. One of them was Yossi Hollander, and the other was Michael Pillsbury. Yossi Hollander, Yossi Hollander was and has been, uh, as you probably know, one of uh, Israel's uh, top software entrepreneurs. Until in 2012, he became co-founder of an organization called Fuel Freedom Foundation, which was looking into the process of how it was that advanced industrialized economies had become dependent upon petroleum gasoline from suppliers, particularly in the Middle East, for whom the strategic goals and the revenues and wealth that was accumulated from that Middle East, from that oil exports, were not congruent <laughs> with the strategic goals of the West and of other and of the industrialized democracies. Fuel Freedom has been addressing and taking on this topic now since 2012 of how is it that the world's dependence upon petroleum gasoline, the world's dependence upon supplies from OPEC, has placed it in many ways in an aspect of strategic peril and the ways in which we, in a sense, ease that peril by moving away from petroleum gasoline as a, as a means of maintaining an industrialized uh, and post-industrial transportation grid. And given what has happened in Paris this weekend, Given the relationship between ISIS and oil exports and oil production, I think the agenda for Fuel Freedom Foundation looks even more relevant today, even more relevant today than it has, uh, than it has in the past. But Yossi Hollander's interest does not just extend to questions about uh, oil imports for the United States. Uh, it also includes an acute interest in the emerging energy picture for China. He's a frequent visitor to China. He has talked to leading authorities there about China's energy future and about its transportation future. 
He brings to this subject uh, not only a keen interest, I would even say a passion, with regard to questions about energy independence and what happened, the post-petroleum gasoline future, but also a strong technical and scientific understanding of these issues. As a member of the, uh, of the, of the board for uh, uh, the Kaim Weizmann Institute, uh, advisory board uh, for the, um, is it the Carnegie Foundation? Was it, was it the Cornell University's uh, uh, Sustainable Future Program. Um, he is someone who, as I think you'll find from his addresses, our keynote speaker, brings not only a, an original and, 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 and unique perspective to so many of these kinds of issues, including regard to China, but is also someone who is eloquent and compelling in his presentation of his message on these sorts of issues. And so, for, therefore, it's of enormous honor to me and also an enormous pleasure to introduce as our keynote speaker, Yossi Hollander, president of the Fuel Freedom Foundation. Thank you, Arthur. Good morning, everybody, and uh, it's a pleasure being here with you. Thank you for the Hudson Institute for hosting this event. Um, I'm not going to be speaking so much about it today, although after what happened in Paris, everybody wants to, probably. But I'm going to be speaking also not about the near future or the or or even the past. People will speak about that. I think I'm going to look strategically about what's common, what's different between China and the United States when it comes to energy and why is it so important, I think, for both countries. So the general perception, especially with election year in Washington here in the United States, is that uh, China and the U.S. are competing for influence and power. And uh, there is some truth to that. I'm not going to touch into that subject and analyze it uh, deeply. But I think there's an area where, as the two let's say, largest uh, economies in the world right now, where U United States and China has more in common than a difference, and yet we have done really nothing about it uh, in either country or even cooperation, not just a cooperation, but even internally. So my remarks will focus really more on the potential, not what is happening, and try to analyze the strategic aspect of it. So, first of all, both countries need one thing, growth. So growth is essential to the existence of both countries and both political systems. So if you think about China, China has a social contract the only, with the population. The real greatest danger for that social contract is if the growth slows down or disappears. And growth is connected to energy, and we'll talk about it as well. Um, the same is uh, true with uh, the United States. We are a growth-based economy. I don't know if we can have an economy that will not grow for a very long time. And certainly we can see the effect of slow growth on the middle class here, and I'm not sure what it will do to the politics of the future. It used to, used to say in the past that when the United States sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. 
I believe the events of the last few years proved that, uh, that also if China sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. And therefore, the interest of growth is really something that they are interdependent between two countries, and it's also important for the rest of the world. So I believe that if you look at history, one of the probably the best indicators of, uh, of, of um, uh, growth is the price of oil. So throughout history, most uh, economic crises started with a spike in oil prices. And we cannot ignore that, and this is something we should keep in mind, especially in today's uh, low oil price. If you look at the discussion about energy in China and the U.S., most of it is limited today to electricity. But I would concur here that electricity is totally unimportant economic-wise. Just to give you an idea, when the United States spends hundreds of billions of dollars on oil, it spends $30 billion on coal. So if we pay 50% more or 50% less from coal, it's a rounding error. So the key is what is strategic, and what's strategic is oil. What is also strategic for growth is stability. So the whole world economy today, with its global connection, depends on stability. And the greatest danger today for the world is instability. And instability exists around where oil comes from and where oil is created and what oil is financing. So in China, perhaps they have their own uh, terrorists in the Muslim provinces, but the ideology comes from the same place, comes from the Middle East. We've seen what happened in Paris. So if you think that the world econo economy can grow if we're going to have a lot of terror events, no, it's a real damp on, uh, on uh, growth. And we cannot afford an unstable environment. And the environment is getting more and more unstable. And China is not in, and the United States are not interested in unstable environment. They're interested in a stable environment. And unless we can stabilize the Islamist, oil-funded environment that we have in the world, the world economy is not going to grow in the pace we need to. And this is critical for the U.S. and it's critical for the China. And it's critical for economic reasons. So the question is, of course, who should fix that? But we'll talk about it on the military side. Clearly, China doesn't want to get involved in that. But the question is, is it only a military issue here? So I think the issue is really to eliminate the Islamist ideology here because that drives most of the conflicts around the world today. And if we can do that, the only way to do it, I believe, is uh, to defund it. And for that perspective, the way to defund it is to keep the pressure on oil price. Now, of course, um, the low price of oil is something we all say, oh, okay, problem is solved. Price of oil is low. I don't know. Have you lived in the world in the last 40, 50 years? There were days that the price of oil was low, and there were days that the price of oil was uh, high. And there will always be a spike. If everybody thinks that if ice is going to be put against the wall when we try to eliminate them and they will not blow up some only infrastructure, I think you're living in a dream. They might blow it anyway. Because if you're actually looking for logic in what they do, good luck. 
So I think we are going to see a spike in oil price. Maybe it will be triggered by a security event. Maybe it will be triggered by demand event because we can still see demand in the world growing and it will keep on growing. So if anybody thinks that if China theoretically slows down to 5%, which I don't understand what that means, by the way, okay, it is not necessarily means that there are less cars being bought. Actually, last year have seen the largest oil demand growth in a very, very long time, some of it to fill up China's strategic petroleum reserve. So the question is, what can we do about it? So let's look a little bit more about that. And so we want low price of oil, but let's see what, what are we doing about it in both countries. So what's common? One is both countries are the largest oil importers in the world. China is now as a percentage larger than the U.S. and very soon will pass it in quantity. I don't understand, by the way, what is energy import. We'll talk a little bit about energy. I just imported a cup of coffee into my mouth. That was a very good energy, nice and warm. But energy, I don't understand. I never paid an energy bill in my life. I paid for gasoline at the pump. I paid for food. I paid for electricity, for natural gas. People pay not for energy. They pay for products they use. And there is an interest as, as, as uh, oil importers to keep the oil flowing and the price low. This is critical. A rise in the price of oil can break the social contract in China. A rise in the price of oil will throw the world in recession. I'm not sure it's not right now there, but I mean it will really throw it in a recession. And a, and a spike in the, in the price of oil will slow down growth. Critical elements for both countries. So part of the issue, if people remember, the, which you mentioned Ford, is the strategic petroleum reserve. China is building its strategic petroleum reserve. There's only one problem. It's not a member of the IEA. It is not coordinated with the rest of the world. So the, world, the Western world, the old consumers, have an agreement about how to use that strategic petroleum reserve in case of shortage, helping each other, and balancing the world demand. China is not part of that. India is not part of that. And unless there, are, there will be, which requires a change, there actually will be very ineffective strategic petroleum reserve. Surprisingly, both countries are also large oil producers. More importantly, I think, is uh, that there is a need, a, a future, like Herman the, Khan said in the, in the, in the past, that for fracking as well. So we figured out how to frack in the U.S., and we'll talk about it in a second, but China has not. And if you ask me, people talk a lot that there, are shale under, there is shale under China. Yes, there is. Will we see a lot of shale or any production in the next five years? Probably not. In 20? Probably very much, yes. So when we look to the future, we're looking to very large uh, shale, gas, shale gas and shale oil reserve that will be used. But most, most people don't notice when they talk about the shale revolution in the context of the U.S., they look at it as an oil revolution. It is not. Every hole that you dig in the ground in the U.S. has more natural gas and natural gas liquids coming out of it than oil. The result is catastrophic price collapse of those commodities. 
I can get ethane in the United States, okay, at prices like 10 cents a gallon. That's like nothing. Or sometimes I get paid to take it. Natural gas in the Marcellus shells is under a dollar. So we're looking at very, very low prices of carbohydrates that are not used, even in the United States. The China, by the way, natural gas is far behind the US, but this will change. We're already seeing it changing. Will it change dramatically over the next two, three, five years? I don't know how much it will. Definitely some coal plants will be converted to natural gas, but we're not gonna see big development other than that, I think. But who knows, maybe we will. But in 20 years, yes, natural gas will become a very major player with pipelines coming from Asia and other places and from on-shell production. There's another interesting factor that's uh, common to both countries, and that's the largest vehicle market in the world. So today, the U.S. is the largest vehicle, vehicle fleet, while China has the largest vehicle market, that is new cars built every year. China will surpass the U.S. as the largest fleet very, very soon. So, and another thing you have to remember is that growth in the car market is not connected to economic growth. Now you'll say, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? It is not. What we know is that when people reach $20,000 a year of income, they buy a car. Why? Because they can and they want. There's no other economics for that. It just happens. So the real number you have to look at in China is not total economic growth, but the number of people crossing the $20,000 income threshold over the next 20 years. That number is much larger for various reasons. And they're gonna buy a car. They're not gonna drive it as much as in the US, but that is also gonna rise. They also developed in China a taste for larger cars, not like the European small cars. Why? Because because they can and they want. So both countries have a growing car culture, growing fleets, even in the United States the fleet is growing, and therefore they will do both dominate the, the vehicle market. So both of the countries have the potential to lead the world in oil replacement. China is experimenting with me methanol, America with ethanol, electric vehicles. You shouldn't look at what is, the what is the number of use of it today. So in the United States, 5% of all petroleum is ethanol. In China, a few percent is methanol. Electric vehicles, yes, we can see the first ones. We can see the market growing. But it's not a big market yet. It's going to take a while. But in 20, 30 years, 50% of the cars will probably, new cars will probably be electric. I think we'll hear a little bit more about it later on, so I don't want to expand on that. Um, don't put your hopes too much, though, on electric vehicles for the near futures, not because they are not good, they're great. Uh, I have three, and I can vouch for them. But I think the problem is the numbers. There, are 90 million, there were 90 million new cars built in the world last year. 300,000 of them were electric and plug-in hybrid. Even if we double the production every year, which we will not, it's very difficult, we will not reach more than 50% of new cars by 2035. And that will mean 2 billion liquid fuel cars in the world. 
So ethanol and methanol are going to be critical for the survival of the world economic growth. And I think both countries are too slow to realize it. There's another uh, interesting uh, factor, and that's air pollution. So both countries are concerned about it, but in a very different way. So the United States, if you recall the pictures of uh, California and other places in the 60s, took care of a lot, some of the problem. So we eliminated a lot of what we call stationary sources, power plants. We're cleaning the air much better from that. We clean the cars in much, much better way than we did before. But we kind of stopped. We turned our attentions elsewhere, that is to climate, and we left air pollution alone in the United States. That's kind of very, very interesting uh, direction because there's a lot that still could be done. If you're looking at the seat, any big city in the United States from far away and see a brown cloud, that is not from coal. That is from oil. And yet we're not doing anything about it. That is surprising because in a survey that we've done across America, uh, we asked Americans in, uh, in uh, all, all states and in eight focus groups, what do they care about in environment? And it came really at the top, but not climate. What came at the top is the air our kids breathe. And it is quite surprising that the government ignores the people in that regard. And in China, that is one of the big issues, the air the people breathe. And I think it become, if you're asking about the social contract, it is now part, cleaning the air is part of the social contract because even the party leaders breathe the same air. And everybody needs cleaner air, and we know the way. Okay? So that means replacement, of, at least in the big cities, of coal with natural gas-based plants. It means scrubbers and other... It also means better air pollution on, on cars. But with the numbers we're talking about, unless we, China also takes the leadership in eliminating NOx and other pollutants, it's not going to be easy to solve. China is in a, tra a mass faster trajectory than the U.S., but both countries can do the same. And the, probably the solution is electric and ethanol, methanol. So some of you may ask, okay, so where is climate? Is climate a strategic issue between the countries? And my answer to that is no. So yes, the current administration puts, in the U.S. administration, puts climate at one of the top of its agenda. But may I remind you, it was not on the top of its agenda in the previous four years. Because there is a conflict with growth, and nobody can deny it. You can hide it, but there is. And China cannot afford to slow growth in order to meet whatever climate goals there are. So although we may see China doing the right moves, it will stop when it will slow growth, if it will slow growth. So the, the issue here right now, what is strategic for the U.S.? And the question about climate is very, very interesting because we don't know. What will the next administration say about climate? Will it define it as strategic or not? That's short term. What will administration 20 years from now say, etc.? Some people can say climate is the most important issue in the world. Maybe. 
but is it the most strategic issue for both countries the way they see it from economic growth perspective? And I can assure you, based on our statistics, the minute people were asked to pay $1 for climate solutions in the United States, they said no. They're not willing to pay for it. They say it's an important problem, but I don't want to pay for it. And for China, they cannot afford to pay for it right now. Not from a money perspective, from a slow growth perspective. So I don't see uh, climate as driving, except for a lot of conversation, driving a lot of investment. And I don't see it changes policy that much. And nobody talks about it, but the largest elephant in the room is the coal deposits of both countries. I think we'll hear a little bit more, more about it during the day. But China is using coal in way, way larger proportion than the United States, and the United States is not a small consumer either. The largest decline in greenhouse gases in the United States did not happen because of uh, climate rules. It happens because of the price of natural gas. It's much cheaper than coal. That's all. So it's all price and economic sensitive. So I would look very, very carefully and put my expectation down on the climate issues for uh, the strategic reasons that I've just outlined. So as we see, both countries have really a lot of the same goals when it comes to energy and a lot of the same strategic outlook, and yet both countries don't do much about it. So people talk about cooperation. Maybe we could have cooperation. We don't have enough cooperation within our own countries. China is not cooperating with itself, and we're not cooperating with ourselves to get, to get uh, anything done. So, yes, the, the number, the, the only factor in economic growth right now is the price of oil and the stability. And I don't know. You think we're doing enough? We think the world is getting stabler? We think the price of oil is going to stay low forever? I don't think so. So I think if the countries are if they're thinking about the next two or three years, yeah, I don't know what will happen. Probably lower price, probably. Stability is slightly less. But if you're thinking forward and you want to make sure you have the engines for growth for the next 20 years, then you've got to make sure there's enough of oil replacement, cheap oil replacement, and that the price of oil is cheap. Thank you very much. You want to take some questions now? Or should we question, go? please. Good morning. My name is Todd Wiggins. I appreciate your uh, your speech, your presentation. I'd like to ask you what your favorite stock picks are, but that would be another opportunity, hopefully. I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to ask you about, though, is the more that I attend events like this, the more it becomes obvious to me that military is going to be a big part. Now, we talk about ISIS is one thing, but then military in general, this is the Spratly Islands. I think about that. Why is China so concerned? consumed with the Spratly Islands, and some people say it's because of energy that might be, or resources that are you know, below the, the, those islands. And so you even seem to say that, that um, 
you seem to have some chagrin for what is going on because it seems as though we're fighting against each other for resources and the world is not getting any larger and we're still reaching for more and more and more. So if we grow, then like te tectonic plates, we push against each other and eventually we have conflict. So is there any hope that uh, we're going to remain peaceful without some major uh, nuclear um, uh, situation coming up within the next 10 years? I don't think there is a danger of that, surprisingly. Actually, I think those are skirmishes, although they could always develop to something more than that. But I think the interest is stability and economic growth. War is not serving that. So I think people will stop very short of even... There'll be escalation, there'll be things happening, but I don't think this is strategically between China and the U.S. is what's going to happen. Also, remember that China and the U.S. will always have their oil. It's the rest of the world that needs to worry. So if there's a limited amount of oil, China will get it. If there's a limited amount of oil, we will get it. Africa, South America, zero. So if, there's a, if we're going to have a, an oil crisis, like in the 70s, where there were shortages, China and the U.S. have enough power to get their own oil. They don't need to run into each other. Now, will we see influence, sphere of influence, clashes, and stuff like that? Yes. But I don't see a big, big, big war developing because it's against the interest. You don't get the growth from that. You don't think spiraling arms is a big deal? Uh, I don't think in the big scheme. I'm not saying it's not a big deal for the people who are involved in that in the day today. But in the, if I'm looking on a 40-year horizon, last 10, 30 forward, no. That's, I'm not saying today that's not a problem we need to solve. We've solved many conflicts and problems. I remind everybody, we were at war with China directly in the North Korea. We were shooting at each other. We're, we're okay. <laughs> Any more questions, please? Yes, please. So you, uh, didn't could, see your could you just do one thing for us when you get a yeah. chance, when you're gonna be asking questions, and this will be true for the whole conference. If you can just briefly identify yourself or and whatever affiliation you care to uh, uh, okay. reveal at the same time, that would be really great. Thank you. Great, no problem. Hi, so I'm Juliet Wilkins, and I just started interning here not too long ago. Um, so my question is, you said that, well, it's rather a statement than a question. So you mentioned that um, in the next four, in the past four years, for the past four years, um, the environmental concerns have not been important to the strategy uh, for China and the U.S. relations. Um, is there any chance that they will consider other things besides economic stability? Will they consider human rights? Will they consider, you know, the conditions of perhaps their workers? Is there any room to, I guess, convince them otherwise that maybe they do need to take a look at it for, you know, the future? Thanks. Uh, so I don't believe in convincing anybody that uh, people take care of their interests. I believe in interests. And unfortunately, not because I want it, it's because that's how the world moves. Not, it's not a question of how would I like to see the world. So if we think about it, I mean, we've been supporting the most uh, disastrous anti-human rights regimes like Saudi Arabia, where they still cut people's hands and uh, stone them, etc. and women have wonderful rights there. Okay? They could be driven around all the time. Oh, they can't drive, sorry. So, um, but, but, so, yeah, and we've been uh, great supporters of that for the simple reason, because we had an economic interest. Uh, there's a movie we made called Pump, which I recommend for everybody to go and see. 
pump. You can get it on Netflix, iTunes, etc. But there's a guy in the movie that says that if Kuwait grew broccoli, we probably wouldn't be sending troops there. Yes, please. Hello. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Qi Hangzhen from Xinhua News Agency. Uh, my question is that uh, uh, you said that talking about the climate change, you said the uh, uh, attitude of the U.S. Uh, administration is not quite clear. But we have just seen that uh, President Obama has the hill that U.S. should be the uh, uh, have the global leadership in the incoming Paris conference, and uh, it seems that uh, fighting climate change is one of his political legacy. So can you explain more on what do you mean that the uh, uh, American administration's attitude is not clear? Do you mean that the next president will change it? Thank you very much. Um, so one is, first of all, in the current administration, we have to remember when climate was uh, introduced as a bill during the previous four years of the administration, the first four years, for some reason, it didn't pass. I guess it wasn't that important and it wasn't at the top of the list because if the issue was growth and being reelected, then maybe that wasn't the reason. Maybe that was the reason it wasn't on the top of the agenda. I mean, he could have had a different selection of issues in the first administration. He did not. He moved it to the second administration, uh, strategically, tactically, etc. But as you can see from the American politics, there is large disagreement about the subject. I'm not saying who's right or wrong. That's, I'm just analyzing the situation. And it is quite likely that the next president, not necessarily, I don't know who it will be, but will not necessarily have the same agenda. Especially if you look at uh, what just been in the last few days, that President Hollande asked for a commitment from the United, hard commitment for the United States, and the United States said we can't. So I don't know that there will be because they can't because there is no agreement in the United States, internally, politically, that this is strategic. If in 20 years there will be, maybe. I don't know, but I don't see that agreement happening in the near future. So my talk was not about the current administration. Definitely this is one of their top agenda. But we're talking about, about a 20, 30, 40 years horizon. Okay. Oh, okay. One more. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Margot Fimbres from the Department of Energy. And I was hoping that you could clarify a little bit when you said that in both countries, but spe specifically with China, that if it's going to affect growth, not much is going to be done in terms of pollution or climate. And um, recently, I've seen some photos from northern China where it's been, been called an air apocalypse, where you can't really see you know, 300 feet in front of you. Yeah, um, a good day. Yeah, so I'm curious, is there, do you think that there's a balance that will be, that they'll have to figure out, you know, this might limit growth in the short term, but in the long term, we just can't handle this, these levels of pollution. So where, where is that balance? So, so maybe I'll make myself clear. I think I said that on the climate, not on the pollution. Okay. Pollution is definitely one of the top issues for China for the same reason it was, okay? Because here, the China does not have an election. But here, when air became big issues, 
in the, in the United States. We took care of it for the simple reason, because people were angry, and it became an election issue and a political issue. In China, it is not election, but it's definitely part of the social contract to clean the air. So it becomes so bad, as you said, that people don't know. There is a discontent that the party is quite aware, I believe, okay? and is trying, actually, to move. I think if you look at the country with the largest improvement in air quality, I know there are in different places, and that it's not identical across China, but it is moving faster probably than any other country in terms of improvement, I believe. Measurements are very difficult because we, we do not uh, have measurement in every one million city in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, China over the last 20 years. But I mean, but we do know that it's been clear, and I think it will be. So I think it, because it is part of the growth issue and part of the social contract for growth, air pollution is a, a strategic uh, issue for China. Surprisingly, it's not a strategic issue for us. Climate has moved into the first place in the environment scale, uh, at least in this administration. I don't know. Future, I think American people will speak, and therefore it will be pollution again. Yossi Hollander, thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Thank you. Our next speaker is, um, well, how should I describe Mike Pillsbury? Well, I could start by saying that he, no he needs no introduction. Well, actually, he probably does. With It depends. And, uh, and I enjoy doing introductions for Michael Pillsbury, so I'm going to take, uh, take, take my time with this one. Michael Pillsbury is a colleague. Uh, uh, senior fellow at Hudson Institute, but is also, I would say, a, has been since the 1970s a storied presence in the U.S. State Department, in the U.S. Defense Department, and in the uh, RAND Corporation. In fact, it was as a young Randian in 1975-1976 that Michael Pillsbury wrote a series of articles suggesting that the United States needed to establish ties for both uh, uh, intelligence cooperation but also economic cooperation with uh, communist China. Um, those articles were read by, among others, Henry Kissinger and James Schlesinger, um, uh, Gerald Ford's Secretary of Defense, and they said, this sounds like a very good idea. And the result was is it began the process of establishing and normalizing relations between the United States and China that Nixon's trip in 1972 had, had opened the door to. Later on, Michael Pelsbury moved on from China uh, as part of the Reagan defense uh, community and in the Department of Defense. He helped to shape what came to be known as the Reagan Doctrine, uh, including in Afghanistan, in the ongoing war of insurgents against the Soviet occupation. But in the interim years, Michael Pillsbury did not lose his interest and fascination with China. And uh, his most recent contribution, and I don't want to summarize all that he's done in the books and articles that he's written until now, 
But his most recent contribution is a book called The 100-Year Marathon. What's the subtitle, Michael? Well, I'm going to I'm going to do that. I'm going to break all the rules in this sense. The subtitle is <laughs> Actually, it's not. It's China's plan to replace the United States as superpower. Is that correct, Michael? Have I got it? Um, and the book has been an instant bestseller, both in the United States and in Asia. It reached uh, number two on Amazon in Japan, both in the English translation, uh, in the English original, and in the Japanese translation. I've no doubt it is also a bestseller in China, uh, particularly among members of the Politburo and Chinese Communist Party. Um, and Michael has just returned from a book tour uh, of Asia talking about his book and about its larger significance for understanding China's relationship, not just with the United States, but also with the rest of Asia. But at the same time, China, Michael is someone who, although his views on U.S. and China uh, competition are forthright and, I would say, don't mince words, he's also someone who's maintained very strong connections and relationships in China, uh, visiting with the leading think tanks there, meeting with leading military and strategic thinkers. There, he's a figure who is highly respected in China, just as he is highly venerated in the United States, and particularly at the Hudson Institute. Um, and so it was with a great deal of pleasure and, and, and delight that I was able to convince Michael to uh, end his book tour and to come speak to us about U.S.-China relations in the energy area and to give us some perspective on the ways in which U.S.-China energy cooperation has worked in the past and the ways in which it can work and what the delineations are for the future as well. And so I'd like you to welcome, please, our, uh, our second speaker uh, for the conference, uh, Michael Pillsbury. Thank you, Arthur. I think my assignment today is to talk about the history of U.S.-China cooperation in energy. And to do that, I have to expand a little bit and talk about U.S.-China cooperation in general. Uh, in my book, I'm very lucky to get permission to declassify a number of presidential documents that go back to 1970. Three, and they continue forward to the present, that many people I find in the think tank world, the academic world, they have a general idea that the U.S. and China cooperated during the Cold War, but they've never seen the actual documents. They don't know the depth and the breadth of the cooperation. They don't know how secret it was, and they're quite stunned when they see these documents. I put the documents on a website, so people can read it, because frankly, the skepticism of these documents is very high. Uh, one of the first documents is, I'll skip over Nixon and Ford documents, but one of the first and more important on energy is Jimmy Carter. 
1978. You all know the story in the campaign for president. There's supposed to be a 3 a.m. in the morning phone call, and the president answers, it's a crisis, and who do you want to answer that 3 a.m. phone call? There really was such a 3 a.m. phone call. It was 1978. President Carter had sent his science advisor, Frank Press, and Mike Oxenberg, his NSC man for China, to see Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping demanded immediate agreement on science exchanges with the United States. Oxenberg wrote in a memoir, he had seen Deng Xiaoping 12 times. Deng Xiaoping was the most excited he had ever seen. So Frank Press telephoned Jimmy Carter. It was 3 a.m. in Washington, D.C. He said, Deng Xiaoping wants this. Can I agree to it? And Jimmy Carter said, yes. Later on, this became a classified document describing a rather massive American support for science and technology in China. This is before we'd even recognized China. The number of students grew from 1,000 to almost 300,000 with a focus on science, including energy issues. When President Reagan came to office, he signed four secret documents increasing, vastly increasing American support, especially in the energy area, but in all science and technology areas with China. One of the first, NSDD 11, authorized Chinese, authorized American support for Chinese nuclear energy. We were the first country to do that, other, other than some rather limited Soviet efforts. And that started a process which continues today, that we work closely with China on nuclear, civilian nuclear energy development. Reagan also signed three other documents uh, that are now declassified, one of which said America's national strategy is a strong China. And all departments of the government were ordered to help build a strong China. I don't think this policy has ever changed. So I'll read you some more of these documents, but I want to underline my first main point. When you read stories in the newspapers about the U.S. and China having friction or somehow there's a trouble in the South China Sea or rising China is somehow confronting the old American hegemon, these articles are essentially false and misleading. If you look first at the old documents, I'm going to continue to go through with you, but if you look at the size of the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, one thing should strike you. It's the largest American embassy in the world. If you visit our embassy in Beijing, you will see every department and agency of the U.S. government is there, and they're under instructions that date back almost 40 years to assist their Chinese counterparts in building a strong, prosperous China. So it's very easy to get confused with newspaper stories about an American frigate or destroyer goes in. Isn't this terrible? There could be, there's four new books about will there be a war with China? Is there a coming war with China? These books, this is ridiculous. This is simply ridiculous. 
This is the country, China is the country America helps the most in the world. For various reasons in Congress, this view is not shared. Members of Congress have tended to see China as a violator of human rights, oppressor of the Dalai Lama, uh, somehow not friendly, uh, no security treaty with China, threatening Taiwan, this kind of thing. This view means the executive branch have, has never asked permission from Congress for all of these assistance programs to China. There's no budget. In my last chapter in the book, I talk about how each department of our government has a program with China. Congress has never objected. In fact, it's never even asked that all these budgets be put together. The problem with this is in China, for various reasons, since 1989, the U.S. government has been demonized in government-approved textbooks. So if you're a young person in China, you are told Abraham Lincoln was the first American who tried to contain China. Then you're told a long list of things, bad things, the Americans have done. One book says the Americans instigated Japan to invade in the 1930s. Another book, another a recent video, almost last year, called Silent Contest, Zhao Liang, Wusheng, Silent Contest. Many, many generals come on the program for 90 minutes and explain how the American government's trying to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party by subverting people using exchange programs and other means, pretending to be a friend of China, but actually trying to overthrow China. So my proposal at the end of the book is the U.S. government should make public, both to Congress and to China, all the things we have done over 40 years to what one economist told me, almost double the Chinese growth rate. Chinese growth rate was roughly 4 or 5% in the 50s, maybe zero for the decade of the Cultural Revolution. Then after this 3 a.m. phone call, when Deng Xiaoping said science and technology is the core of economic growth, very controversial at the time, but he pushed very hard. So we must get science and technology for China from Europe, Japan, America. That's the key to growth, and he succeeded, averaging 10% a year, more than 30 years. But the Congress didn't know about it, and the Chinese people don't know about it. So if this economist is anywhere near correct, Arthur, it means half of China's growth rate since 1978 is due to the favorable measures taken by the American government. To what? To accept Chinese exports with very low tariffs, to directly aid the Chinese energy program, to directly aid Chinese universities. And any time China has identified something they want from us, for example, they didn't have a joint venture capital system. They didn't know how to create small companies with high-tech input. We help them create a venture capital system. They had non-performing bank loans. Huge problem. Office of the Controller of the Currency sent a team to show them how to improve uh, non-performing bank loans. Our National Science Foundation, if you go to its website, has a special extra money. If you want to apply for a grant from the $8 billion 
$8 billion National Science Foundation, which has a huge energy program, and you're from China, or you want to work with a partner in China, you get a bonus. It's right online when you apply. You work with the Chinese, you get a bonus from National Science Foundation. No other country in the world has that. Indians and other countries have asked, why don't you do that for some other country? No, we only do it for China. The U.S. has a large office in Beijing of the National Science Foundation. We have more than 100 agreements with China, scientific cooperation agreements, that require us to immediately transfer American scientific discoveries to the Chinese Ministry of Science and Technology. A few years ago, Arthur, the Chinese told us when Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton was in office, we're having problems with innovation. Our national innovation system is very slow compared to you Americans. So the American government decided to create a bilateral innovation summit with China in which their Ministry of Science and Technology, Commerce, various people in, in, included in, in, on the Beijing side who are responsible to improve China's uh, national innovation system. That's the buzzword that's used, NIS, National Innovation System. A lot of books on this. The American side's responsibility is to transfer our concepts, for example, tax reductions for R&D, Long list of concepts. There have been three rounds of the summit so far. The Chinese side says, well, we don't really have any innovation ideas for you Americans. We are a poor, backward country. But we're very grateful. But please don't tell the outside world that you're helping us. Obviously, it would conflict with the narrative that the Americans are out to get China, to overturn the Communist Party, doing very bad things to encircle and surround China. If it was also revealed that the Americans are helping us improve our national innovation system. So just to go back to some of the documents, after Reagan, President, actually Reagan in March of 86 approved the biggest support for Chinese energy, science and technology in general of all time. He signed a recently declassified directive. He'd been told by his advisors, one of whom was me, that the Chinese had something called the 863 program, 1986, March, 86-3. They had a long list of projects, literally hundreds of projects they wanted to attempt in bioengineering, genetics, laser physics. Some of them were, quite a few were energy related. President Reagan's directive said, we must help the Chinese 863 program. So this continued under, uh, was brought back a little bit under George H.W. Bush in the military exchange area, but in the energy cooperation area in science and technology, it was not stopped by, after the Tiananmen incident. President Clinton actually did not increase. He just continued the high level of support. President Obama has also continued this. I mentioned the Innovation Summit. There's a number of other activities. During this whole period, the Chinese view of energy and the environment has been the same as they expressed in the 1970s. In a very famous speech in Stockholm, a Chinese leader said, the Americans, and I think he meant the British, Americans in Europe have had 150 years 
of high growth with pollution. Now they want China to adopt standards that if these Western countries had had those standards from 1840, they never would have grown so fast. So we're not going to do it. The United States did not accept that. Another program began with permission from the Chinese, as long as it was kept quiet. We will help you create a Ministry of the Environment. At first it was an environmental protection agency like ours. Then it was upgraded by China to a environmental uh, protection ministry. The U.S. helped that officially. Our EPA helped create their EPA. We also, through various American congressionally funded organizations, financed NGOs to work on energy, alternative fuels, to work on reduction of coals, to start environmental movements, funded by the United States to help the Chinese system of environmental controls. Some American experts on China count this as a huge success. So I'm trying to suggest to you that for those who want to improve or enhance U.S.-China energy cooperation and improve China's energy security, this is already a 40-year project in which China enjoys the number one position as the country in the world the United States helps the most. I think this is very little known. I'm sure some of you are very skeptical of this. If you pay $21, you can buy the book. <laughs> However, you can also go to the website, 100 Year Marathon. Some of the documents are there. It's, uh, frankly, if I were you, I'd rather read the actual documents than read the description of them in my book. I finally would conclude by saying this policy of pretending that China is a permanent, backward, weaker country than us, this policy has come under challenge because of some factual developments. The number of billionaires now, the number of billionaires in China is more than the number of billionaires in America. You could say, oh, I don't care. You know, that's got nothing to do with me. But some people see that in newspapers and magazines. They get a little surprised. The Chinese GDP is closing in on the American GDP. The, the policies and documents I'm describing to you were adopted when China's GDP was only 10%. This is America back in the 1978-80 period. This was China, 10%. Now, almost neck and neck. Two important economists in China have written books. One is the former chief economist of the World Bank, Lin Yifu, Justin Lin. I very much I praise his work in my book. He says in 2030, 15 more years, China's GDP will be double America's GDP. Hu Angang, another very famous economist in China, wrote a book called China 2030. Same forecast. 2030, China's GDP will be double. Now, our newspapers and our think tanks deny this. They attack economists like this. They say, no, pollution, cancer, water, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, human rights violations, China's going to collapse. 
The best-selling book on China before me was called The Coming Collapse of China. If you look at our newspapers, and you look especially at the Financial Times, the China collapse or the China slowdown theory, the China's going to slow from 6 or 7 percent to only 3 percent, or maybe even collapse, that narrative is very strong. It's the mainstream view. Don't worry about China. Yes, it was poor before, only 10 percent of us. Yes, it's equal to us, more or less, but they're going to collapse or slow down. In the meantime, the Jeb Bush campaign says if you elect Jeb Bush president, he will raise America's growth rate to 4 percent. So China, 3 percent or less for the next 20 or 30 years by our Western experts, and America at 4 percent. Okay, no problem. America will always be number one, and all these programs authorized over 40 years will make a great deal of sense because we'll have the Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan dream of a strong, stable, and prosperous China sort of working hand-in-hand -hand with America through the giant embassy we have in Beijing. If the two Chinese economists are right, and we won't know for 15 years, Arthur, if the two leading Chinese economists are right, it's a very different world we're going into. And we Americans, especially in the government, have been highly naive about China. Because obviously in the energy pollution area, energy and environment area, we could have linked the two. We could have said, yes, we'll give you all this help in innovation, science, uh, our DARPA and our energy ARPA working with you Chinese counterparts. We could have done all that and had conditions. You have to do this and this and this about environmental issues. We didn't do that. We did not link. The Assist China program was so deeply felt by so many presidents that the idea of linking the two to conditions never happened. But if you look at the main speeches now on China, by the main presidential contenders on the Republican side, certainly. If you look at Hillary Clinton's new book, Hard Choices, you find a, different, you find a more cautionary or even skeptical note about China. So my advice for those who want energy cooperation between the US and China is to move rapidly. Move rapidly. Because at some point, our Congress and our future presidential advisors are going to change their framework for how they see China. And they will tend to see China more as a competitor, a rival, even an adversary. And energy cooperation programs that looked wonderful in 2015 will begin to be questioned. Maybe Congress will even ask, give us the, ask the executive branch, give us the list of all the ways you've been helping China. Give us the budget authority, give us the name of the program, and that kind of action uh, is under discussion already. Two senators have formed the Senate Competitiveness Caucus, one Republican author and one Democrat. And they've issued some statements about America becoming more competitive. They've also issued a number of, this is my last point, a number of indicators that show a very almost Chinese approach if you look at a lot of indicators about American competitiveness, uh, global mercantilism is one of them, the Global Mercantilist Index. There's one in Davos. 
is issued on international competitiveness. There is a science and technology indicators. On all of these reports, the American scores are going down and the Chinese scores are going up. But this is considered very arcane, unimportant information uh, today. The general narratives, as I said, of China dropping rapidly, America always being the greatest will certainly continue. This is not uh, the mainstream narrative. And so energy cooperation with China really needs to be expedited and worked on before there's a major uh, shift in the perceptions of China. I hope that's what you had in mind, Arthur, that I go through back through the history of U.S. support for science and technology in China, which up until today, I believe, main, is unchallenged and not considered controversial. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Michael. Um, as moderator, I get to uh, push my privilege to ask first question actually to make a remark and then make a question. Uh, the first remark is uh, what you are in effect saying is, is that one of, the, one of the flaws to the U.S. policy of science, technology, and energy cooperation with China was is that there was no linkage between uh, support for Chinese efforts in those areas and at the same time to make the Chinese uh, government aware of, and I'm going to use Yossi's term here, of the social compact with regard to quality of life relating to uh, pollution and pollution efforts, that perhaps it was possible that if that linkage had been put into place, let's say going back to, we won't say the 1970s, but let's say 1980s, that it might have had a major impact on quality of air in in, in northern China, in its major capital and industrial cities, and it, it would have been a very sort of different atmosphere, if you will, uh, literally, for China uh, with regard to its larger economic growth. My question is, I'm very struck by your point about uh, a suspicion that U.S. insistence about China adhering to climate change standards, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the range of other uh, environmental policies that fall under the rubric of combating climate change, that this has been seen by many influential in the Chinese government as a plot. Ironically, it's the only part of the U.S. policy that they could identify as being a plot to lessen Chinese ec economic growth. Uh, at the same time, of course, we just had President Xi sign a climate change uh, agreement with President Obama very recently. We have China now going to a major summit to address these kinds of issues. So my question for you is, is this view of climate change as a means by which to basically retard China and its economic growth, and maybe even for that reason then, too, to push China back down into second-class status as, a, as an economic and, and geopolitical power. Is that a widespread view, and is that one that reaches up into even the inner circle around President Xi? Uh, I, in the book, I translate a lot of Chinese books and articles. I would say no one in China today 
at least no one inside the government or Communist Party of China, is allowed to say the following kinds of statements. America is not containing us. You're not allowed to say that. America is not encircling China. You're not allowed to say that. It's in textbooks. It's in the uh, list of what you have to do if you're a good cadre to get promoted. China Daily, I read China Daily here every day. It's an excellent newspaper. Even China Daily, which is tailored for the American audience, has to say almost every day, America is still containing China, American government. No one in China is allowed to say, let's agree with Obama for the Paris summit on climate change. Let's accept the American position. In fact, one of the most dramatic moments in terms of energy and climate change occurred in 2009 in at the Copenhagen Climate Summit. The account has been given by an, an advisor with Obama in a memoir he wrote called Obama and the Rise of China. Gives you a good feel. It's kind of an indirect answer to your question, but it gives you a good feel of the Chinese view of America. There was a number of proposals. The president spent several days there. It's snowing back at Andrews Air Force Base. They have to take off by 8 p.m. If they don't take off in Air Force One, the president will not be able to get into Washington, maybe even for a couple of days. President Obama says, I don't want a failure. Let's give one last chance and meet with the Chinese prime minister. Chinese say, no, no, don't come now. Come in an hour. Obama goes a little bit early. Hillary Clinton goes in, tries to get in the room. They say, no, you can't come in. She sits down and waits on a sofa. I'm quoting from the memoir. Finally, President Obama arrives. They essentially, they use, the author uses the word football. Football rush. They force open this door. They come in the room where they think the Chinese prime minister is alone with his team meeting how they can possibly help President Obama on the last day and the last two hours get some kind of progress at the Copenhagen summit. What do they see? The Prime Minister of India, Mr. Singh, the President of the Russians, Medvedev, Lulu, the President of Brazil, and the South African President Zuma meeting around a big table, and they're discussing how to make things worse, shall we say, from the President Obama administration point of view. And part of the story is Obama says, hello, how are you? Nice to see you. And the, vice, the Prime Minister of China says, let's explain our position. And he asks his number one climate, perhaps energy would be included, expert Mr. Xie to stand up and give a presentation. Mr. Xie's face turns red. He's quite angry. And the Chinese-speaking person in the Obama delegation hears the Prime Minister of China say, don't translate what he said. President Obama somehow knows a little bit of Chinese or perhaps sees the facial expressions. He says, I, no, no, I got it, I got it. The climate summit of Copenhagen is, ex is explained by the Obama administration as a failure. They hope to do better at Paris. But it appears in the memoir that China is not only taking a principled stand, saying, you know, don't try to force your 150-year-old 
what worked for you, don't try to block China from the same path, China seems to be orchestrating four other powers together to oppose the Americans. Now that's going a little bit far, wouldn't you say? Given this 40-year history of American support for Chinese economic growth and for a strong China. Michael, do you have time to take some questions from the audience? Three? Three. We'll start here in the front. Does he have to identify himself? He's going to. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yes, uh, Gal Luft from uh, IAGS. Um, uh, I have a question about the uh, program 863 and how it uh, extends to cyber. Um, and the reason I'm asking it in the context of uh, energy event is because the Chinese grid is very weak, very vulnerable. And um, is that something that you know uh, that has been extended into this type of cooperation? And if so, is it in America's interest? Well, yes, it's part of American cooperation. I wouldn't say cooperation. I'd say support and assistance from American government to China. Yes, uh, from the beginning, we have assisted the Chinese at their request with their cyber programs, their national network, their standards. One of the ways we do this, uh, the, among the very few things that were denied to China are weapons. And even that, we used to sell China weapons. I just tell the story in the book how we bought $2 billion of Chinese weapons from them to go to the Afghan resistance. They, out of that $2 billion, you think about, think about the American $2 billion, they took $500 million to buy weapons from us. This is in the 80s. The 863 program is 1986. So if we're selling China weapons, advanced torpedoes, improving their artillery, upgrading their jet fighters. You can see how helping with their cyber programs, their, compu their nationwide computer network, that would be nothing. That would fall under less sensitive than the weapon sales. Later on in 1989, after the Tiananmen incident, the US, Europeans, Union members, <coughs> and Japan cut off the weapon sales. And no weapon sales since 89, only Russia and some other countries every now and then sell weapons to China. So American companies have not been blocked if they want to transfer technology, software, knowledge about cyber issues to China. This is not, on, this is not considered a munitions control list weapons matter. The companies themselves have begun to complain to the White House. A lot of pressure has been put on President Obama by American companies. At one time, he used the word gangsterize. Our companies are being gangsterized. And he's tried to do some things about this, indicting the five PLA uh, hackers. But they're very small. I keep trying to make, have people understand the comparisons. Indict five PLA hackers versus a study by Dennis Blair and John Huntsman a couple years ago that estimated the loss to the United States economy, I think $500 billion, $500 billion lost to the U.S. economy by Chinese uh, cyber intrusions, hacking, technology theft, and so forth. So 
My main point today is to argue the program is consistent from the early documents in the 70s on to help China in every possible way, with the only exception I know of is the weapons cutoff in 89. And the European Union sometimes raises the issue of, well, let's, why can't we sell weapons now? Human rights has made some progress. Let us sell some weapons to China. But the EU arms, the European Union arms embargo initiated by the European Union because of human rights violations, it's still continuing. But there's great pressure growing in Europe. Let's be free of this. Israel sold a number of systems to China, including something called the Harpy UAV. It's an armed UAV, which is great for attacking radar sites in Taiwan. Uh, the U.S. government officially objected to this. It was covered in the media. And Israel stopped the program and said it was a misunderstanding. Israel had not understood that the Americans felt so strongly. And there's a good reason for that. The Israelis perhaps noticed this massive American aid program to China and thought, well, what's wrong with selling 50 harpies, UAVs, to the Chinese military? Uh, what can be wrong with that in light of this massive American program? The European Union arms embargo debate is sometimes the same way. Several European leaders will say, let's lift the arms embargo. Let's start selling weapons to China. Then the Americans and Japan and others will object. And there's usually some surprise among European leaders. Oh, you really feel strongly? We, we shouldn't sell uh, military air transports or patrol boats to China? And the American government, this goes back 10 years ago, says, yes, we feel strongly. You shouldn't lift your, your embargo. So other than those, I think this full-scale transfer of science and technology, with your question about the 863 program, uh, by then we were already 10 years into it. But that certainly boosted uh, support. Question number two. Go here. We need a Chinese newspaper reporter to ask a question. <laughs> I know. I'm not that, but uh, <laughs> I, my name is David Sandalow, uh, and I want to thank you very much for the superb presentation, and I'm looking forward to reading your book. You're going to buy it? You better believe it. $21. If, if, if you'll sign it. No, no deal. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I'm reconsidering. <laughs> uh, I had the privilege of serving as, uh, in senior positions at the U.S. Department of Energy uh, from about 2009 to 2013, and in those years traveled 14 times to China. Uh, and I just wanted to offer reflections on your comments based on that experience. Please. Uh, in those years, um, the cooperative agenda that you highlight was extremely important. And it actually built on a foundation laid during the George W. Bush administration, and in particular um, by um, the Treasury Secretary, who, Hank Paulson, who launched quite an agenda. Uh, and then in President Obama's first summit, uh, with uh, President Hu Jintao in 2009, President Obama announced seven different energy cooperation programs, including one for shale gas and one for advanced coal. And, um, it, it was a very important part of the agenda. But, but I think it's also important to highlight that it, um, during those years, managing the competition was equally important. And the competitive uh, aspects of the relationship um, were often very challenging. 
And I, I personally spent a lot of time, and I know colleagues spent a lot of time, talking about some very difficult issues, including intellectual property disputes, cyber disputes that Gallo has just referred to, trade and investment disputes, and Iran sanctions. Uh, and and the, uh, the discussion often uh, had to do with the balance between cooperation and competition. Um, and, and you made that point in your remarks, but I think it's worth highlighting that um, the cooperation between the U.S. and China in energy issues, uh, at least in, the, in, in my experience in the recent era, has been constantly balanced with managing um, the more challenging parts of the relationship. And I think I, I would expect that's something that will go forward. Uh, I think you've earned a free copy of this book. So ah. I, I'm signing it right now. And if you simply come forward, you get a free copy of this book because of your contribution to U.S.-China energy cooperation. Well, but before you change your mind, I'm coming forward, and I'll even pay you for it, Mike. No, no, this is free. By the um, way, just to reply a little bit to your question, I know many American officials have tried to get things from China to be competitive, to ask them to do things to help us. I'm not saying that thought's never occurred, but I would ask you a question. Was there actually direct linkage where somebody would say, yes, you can have these nine projects, but only if you do Y? That's what I'm saying has not happened yet. Would you, would you deny that, or do you think I've got it wrong? Go back, to the mic go back to the microphone so you can be recorded oh, here, here, for history. Here's, here's my right. Uh, I would characterize this as a form of soft linkage. I soft it, linkage, okay. it, I think it would be rare that it, um, there would be an instance of, you know, um, uh, specific conditionality, but certainly a, a strong understanding in the part of the dialogue that continued forward motion on cooperation requires um, addressing the competitive issues in a way that's satisfying to both parties. Okay, one, one I like that very much. Soft linkage. In the back, please. Congratulations. The best, Congratulations the best question. The best question. The best question. I'm sorry you can't stick around. Going to Delhi. Catching the flight to India. I know, I know. So I've got one um, more. Go ahead. Okay, it's Mark Rosenblatt. I want to link the previous two questions and ask if, if you listened to the, the biblical injunction that you reap what you sow and you see this reaping, or rather the sowing, of the educational system in China that you talked about, and then link that back to the Hundred Year War theory, of which we're now in the second half, uh, according to your book. Hundred Year Marathon. Hundred Year Marathon. Not, not excuse war. me. Not yet. <laughs> no. Uh, Hundred Year <laughs> Marathon theory. Um, then, at some point, do we have to understand that linkage might be important, and that the the balance of power is shifting and that you can't change the cultural uh, beliefs of China if that's what you've been educating for some number of years and that that will grow up. And are we seeing, you know, at what point do we have to think harder about this, create linkage, and look at some of these issues? Uh, I'm sorry to sound Weasley and defensive, but uh I'm just, in my book, trying to tell the history of what's happened to point out these trends. Uh, Hillary Clinton made a reference one time to America being demonized by China in a speech she gave, I think, at the U.S. Institute of Peace. So that's the first time. Our government has never made a fuss about these textbooks and how we're portrayed. It's very strange that Japan received so much criticism from China and South Korea for its textbooks. One little sentence is somehow wrong. And it becomes a reason to cancer, to cancel state 
uh, visits. The Chinese don't hide these textbooks. You can actually buy them in stores. But those who should do this, I think there's only one professor. Uh, his name is Wang Zheng. He wrote a book on uh, uh, the Chinese national humiliation narrative about three years ago. He's at Rutgers. And he gives a lot of horrifying examples. But even in his conclusion, he doesn't complain. He doesn't say we should ask the Chinese, please don't do this anymore. He just reports uh, the stories. Millions of Chinese school children are taken to what they call Ai Guo Jidi, patriotic bases, where they're shown terrible things done to China by Japanese, British, French. If you go into the National Museum in Beijing, the, it's the world's largest museum, bigger than British Museum, bigger than Louvre. I have a chapter on this museum in, in my book. Um, they have an exhibit called Fuxing Zhilu. It's really the 100-year marathon starting in 1840 to 49, and they put up horrifying pictures of Americans doing bad things in China. There's not one mention of anything good America's ever done for China. It's quite amazing. So I asked the docent and the curators and the graduate students from China with me, you know, where's this and where's this? I said, no, bufang bian, not convenient. Now, we could object. U.S. government or U.S. scholars could write articles about this, say, this is terrible. Please stop. No. 1999, front page of the Chinese main newspaper. 1999, after the B-2 bombing accident. Long article, how America is worse than Nazi Germany. It said Nazi Germany used cyanide gas to murder millions of Jews. The next sentence, American government, Bill Clinton was president, is worse than that. Gave examples why America is worse than Nazi Germany. There's a whole series of these articles, books, museum exhibitions. Does, actually, does nobody care among the American China watching community to bring this to the attention? Apparently not. Professor Wong and me, that's so far, that's two of us. But so much pressure on Japan. But this is a, it's a long story. It's why I, I, I often give away free copies of my book because I just pray that someone who the publisher refers to as a gatekeeper or an influential person will actually spend 10 or 14 hours to read the book and see the translations, see what the Chinese themselves have been saying. It's very hard, though. 14 hours is in busy people's days is not really available. But well worth the time. Michael Pillsbury, thank you very much. Thank you.